Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 82 of the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the historical phenomenon known as the Alliance of Throne and Altar. Have no fear, Bill Bupert will be joining me again soon to record our final installment in the History of Irregular Warfare series we've been doing, and that should, in fact, be the next DHP episode that I'll be releasing after this one. By the way, this episode that I'm about to share with you was recorded Nomad-style in The Silver Bullet, i.e. my 2014 Hyundai Accent hatchback, over the course of a commute to and a commute from work. While it's definitely not as pristine of audio as I can get when I'm at home, it's pretty darn good and is in fact the best in-car sound quality I've gotten so far, thanks to listener support. Because of help from listeners like you, I've been able to make some serious upgrades to a lot of my podcasting hardware. Now, I'm recording the intro and the outro to this episode at home, but the rest, the bulk, the meat of the episode is from the Silver Bullet. But before I shift to that and join myself in progress in my commute, I have some Patreon shoutouts. Big, big thank yous to Thomas, Michael, and Charles. Thank you all very much for stepping up to support the show over at patreon.com slash profcj. It's folks like you who help me be able to continue making and continue improving the Dangerous History Podcast. Remember, if you sign up for any amount of per-episode contribution to this show on Patreon, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if it's any amount from a dollar per episode on up, you'll also get access to exclusive monthly bonus episodes there as well. By the way, just a few days ago, I posted the second DHP Patreon bonus episode, which was, of course, on Samurai and Ninjas. Anyway, let's go ahead and join me during my commute and talk about the Alliance of Throne and Altar. So yeah, I'm recording this in the car, haven't done a mobile gorilla podcast in a while, and I'm hoping that you will hear a decided improvement in my audio. I mean, you know, recording while you're driving, the audio is never going to be as pristine as it is when you're at home, you know, in a controlled environment where you've got things fairly noise-proofed and whatever. I mean, there's going to be road noise in the background. There's going to be occasional, you know, little things. But I'm hoping that the audio that you will hear from this is going to sound much better than any previous podcast I've ever recorded while commuting. And the reason is because of the generosity of listeners like you. I've got a much better portable digital recorder... And I've also got a much better headset microphone than I had previously when I've done some of my other mobile podcasts that, you know, the, the audio quality was not great. I mean, you could understand me, but it's clearly not the same as when I'm at home with a nicer mic and blah, blah, blah. But thanks to the generosity of many of you listeners supporting the show financially in various ways, I've been able to periodically upgrade a lot of my my equipment and things like that, and this is one of those places. So I've got a, a much better digital recorder than I had before, and in addition to that, I've got a, a headset mic that is a high-quality dynamic mic, 
which is better for keeping down background noises and stuff like that. And so far, in just doing some little tests with this rig, the results were quite promising. So I'm hoping that today's recording is going to be, again, not as it won't be as pristine as when I'm recording from home, but it will be better than any previous driving podcast I've ever done. So, thank you for joining me on my commute. We'll see how long this goes. This is, like most of my talks that I do in the car, it's only got a slight bit of basic bullet point notes. Obviously, when you're driving, you don't want to be reading detailed stuff and keeping track of of detailed, you know, facts and figures and dates and very specific info, so when I'm doing something in the car, I like it to be something that I need very little or no notes that I can mostly just talk talk about um, off the cuff. Oh, by the way, before I, I dig into the meat of this episode, just wanted to give you an update in case this one ends up getting released before I record and release my next episode with Bill Bupert. As I'm recording this, it's it's in the middle of the week, and next weekend is when I should be talking to Bill Bupert again and wrapping up our coverage of Irregular Warfare, what will end up being episode 6 in that series. So anyway, if this episode comes out before part 6 of my discussion with Bill Bupert does, have no fear, that is still in the works. I'm not going to leave that, you know, un, unfulfilled. Besides, I have to give Bill the opportunity to... Tell us what he really thinks about the proponents of counterinsurgency war, um, just in case his, just in case he's been too subtle so far. Um, get his take and and the way um, things are falling apart in many areas of the developing world right now that have have insurgencies going on. I'm sure he'll have plenty to say about current events, validating his skepticism and hostility towards counterinsurgency. So what I'm going to talk about today is a concept, a phenomenon that you find in history that a lot of people kind of realize it's there instinctively on some level, but they don't always articulate it very clearly. And when you don't articulate something clearly and explain it clearly and kind of really wrap your head around it, a lot of times, even though on some gut level you know it's there, you don't really grasp it, you don't really grasp its significance. And this concept, this phenomenon that I'm going to talk about, is something called the Alliance of Throne and Altar. The Alliance of Throne and Altar. And it's something I know I've mentioned on the show before, in various venues. Um, Off the top of my head, as I'm driving, I can't remember exactly in which episode or episodes I may have, but I, I know I must have at some point. It's a very important concept, and I first came across it courtesy of Murray Rothbard. And in particular, I believe where I first encountered it was in his essay, The Anatomy of the State, which is always on my short list of of recommended reading. Potentially, it's a paradigm-changing essay, if you're not already in, in a Rothbardian mood or philosophical Rothbardian mindset. But even if you are, it's still worth reading because it's it's so well written, it's so well laid out, and it really ties together a lot of things. So I'm pretty sure that's where I first encountered this concept explained in this way that I'm going to talk about it today. Now, I know the basic concept of there being an alliance between throne and altar predates Rothbard by quite a long time, but I think he was the first to really explain it in in the manner that I'm going to talk about it today. And I think also that he 
has got to be one of the first people to really tie it together in a hostile way and really explore all of its implications. So the basic concept of the Alliance of Throne and Altar goes like this. Secular rulers, obviously a major part of what their, their rule, their ability to tell people what to do and have most people actually listen to, is based on force, is based on, you know, this guy either personally, in the case of like a small tribe, or in the case of something more like a state, his, his agents can and will use violence in order to make you comply with what they want you to do or not do. However, that by itself is insufficient in order to have stable, successful, long-term rule with little or no serious challenges to your authority. In other words, for a ruler to be able to rule, having force is necessary but not sufficient. Or at least not sufficient if the goal is to have long-term stable authority that's you know pretty reliable and not constantly under, under threat or under challenge. Plus you have the problem of rulers generally, and there's, there's some difference in a, in a republic type of a regime where you've got um, time-limited terms of office, at least for some offices, but in general... Rulers want the system through which they rule to have longevity. So they can't just rely on people being scared of them physically or rely on agents being loyal to them in kind of a personal sense. I mean, that can work for a while, but that doesn't work really well over a long period of time. And then you've got the fact that very often rulers, either directly or indirectly, want to pass rule onto either their genetic heirs or at least people of their own of their own class in the case of more of a republic type of a government. And so force alone cannot do this indefinitely. Sooner or later somebody will assassinate you or some ruler will attract the, some some wannabe ruler will attract the allegiance of a lot of your you know, Praetorians or whatever you have that are, are your personal thugs. So you need something beyond that if your rule is to be stable and to endure. And what performs this function very well is some sense of legitimacy. Convincing some significant proportion of the population, preferably most of them, that one's authority, one's right to tell others what to do, and to use force is not only just based on I've got more thugs backing me up than you do, but is based on something larger than that. It is morally good and it is, you know, cosmically justified or what have you. Okay, in other words, we're getting into the realms of belief systems and ideologies. If you want to rule people, you want them to believe that not only is your authority backed up by violence, but that in addition to that, your authority is, in some greater, grander sense, legitimate. And for most of human history, what has performed this function of legitimizing rulers longest, you know, by far than anything else, longer by far than anything else, is religion. And you can see this, some of the earliest states, which early on were typically city-states, and then later you started to get 
little empires that were composed of multiple city-states and, you know, things like the little empire that it's little by our standards today. It was huge by the standards of political authority back then. The Empire of Sargon that I talked about a while ago in a previous episode. Go back to these earliest states of starting in the Neolithic period and then really coming to fruition in a lot of areas in the Bronze Age. And you find that there's always an extremely tight link between religion, institutional, formal religion, organized religion, as it were, and the political authorities. Now, in many cases, in early human civilizations, you've got just flat-out theocracy, where the, the priestly class, those who are the highest up in the religious sphere, in the religious organization, are the same guys who are running the political apparatus. For example, to the best of my knowledge, pretty much all of the early city-states in Mesopotamia had this situation in which the priests were also exercising what we would think of as earthly or secular authority, like literally the same individuals. And that can work pretty well, but not always. Not in all cases. It seems like beyond a certain size, that starts to become more problematic it also seems like, and again, I don't have like a, a hard evidence proof citation to give you on this, but just kind of the gut instinct impression I get from, from what I know of this stuff is that one of the problems, one of the reasons that direct theocracies, where literally the, the priestly class are the secular rulers, are not as common as you might expect in human history, is I think that people get hip to the con quicker. When the priests literally are the rulers, people are perhaps a bit quicker to catch on and say, wait a minute, <laughs> the same guy, the, literally the same people that are making the laws and the taxes and collecting the taxes are the same guys who are claiming to have a pipeline to the gods? Really? People are quicker to spot the con, right? Whereas if the two two institutions, the two uh, pools of personnel, as it were, the king and his, his ministers on the one hand, and then the, the religious authorities on the other, if they are separate, but in very close collusion with each other, that's better, because it appears to the people like these are two separate, distinct things, and yet they support each other, and that seems, I think, in the minds of most people to lend it a greater sense of legitimacy. So, much more common, an alliance of throne and altar is where you have the religious authorities are specific separate people from the secular rulers, but there is close collusion and cooperation for, for mutually beneficial ends. So, while many of the earliest city-states in Mesopotamia were direct theocracies, it doesn't take too many centuries until you start to get situations in which the king or the emperor is not really a part of the clergy, but he has, has a very close relationship with those who are, and they help each other out. And you see this to a large extent in Egypt as well. In Egypt, the pharaoh is you know, supposed to be an incarnation of a god and has a pipeline to the various gods and is able to do things like make the Nile perform, uh, behave properly, flood when it's supposed to, but not too much and not too little. But he's not actually, at least my understanding is, and any of you who are expert Egyptologists can correct me, but my understanding is the pharaoh is not like considered or referred to as a priest in the ancient Egyptian religion. He obviously has religious significance, but the priestly class are a separate group of people from him. 
And similar thing in the case of, like, you know, the Empire of Sargon, that's th- those sort of things. And that becomes more, more common through most of human history. Now, the religious authorities and the secular authorities, even when they are separate individuals and separate, at least theoretically, separate institutions... The reason they often work together so effectively and so well, and that this uh, working alliance can endure for so long, you know, centuries in the case of certain places, is that they've got a mutually beneficial, symbiotic relationship. Each has desires that the other one can fulfill. And so they've got this, I would assume, sometimes explicit and in some cases implicit quid pro quo sort of gentleman's agreement, right? And it goes like this. The priestly class can provide the secular ruler with legitimacy by claiming that this king or emperor or whatever he's called is divinely ordained, is favored by the gods, is chosen by the gods, has the position he has because of something supernatural, And if the people believe this, and most of the time most people do, or at least most people have historically, then they'll be much less likely to revolt or whatever than if the ruler's authority was simply based on he's got he's got the brute force on his side because that can change, you know that can be co-opted or or it can be turned against him or whatever, right? That is fickle, potentially. But by adding this larger supernatural element on top of it, then you end up in a situation where the people think, well, rebelling against the ruler is, to some degree, morally wrong. Even if he's not being the best ruler or whatever, the fact is he's still divinely ordained as our ruler, so we have to just sort of suffer through, even if he's sucking at the moment. And furthermore, if the people genuinely believe that the ruler is supported by the gods then they're also going to have a sense of the ruler is inevitable and it is hopeless to rebel against him because even if we even if on some level we might consider it not immoral to rebel the fact of the matter is if if he is backed up by the gods then it's a, it's a lost cause anyway now you can see why the ruler would really love love the people believing this narrative because it makes it even harder for them to consider the theory, the, the possibility of any sort of rebellion. And it's not until you start getting people um, like Etienne de la Boetie or John Locke or some people like that that you really start to have people saying, no, in some cases, the morally correct thing and perhaps even the right thing to do in terms of, of God's will is to rebel. But that's that's a relatively recent thing in the scope of thousands of years of human history. Now, what in turn can the secular ruler provide for the priestly class if the priestly class confers this veneer of divine legitimacy and authority onto the secular ruler? Well, potentially a bunch of goodies that the priestly class are happy to get. No, throughout much of history, in most cases, priestly classes, and there are some exceptions, there are some, you know, warrior monks and things like that, and some of the rulers of early Mesopotamian theocracies apparently had some martial skill, but the fact of the matter is that typically in most instances throughout history, 
priests and people like that are usually not known for their physical strength and martial skill and, and whatever, right? Their fighting capability. And so it's helpful to bolster their position and give them goodies if they have somebody who is their benefactor who does have martial skill and authority and capability. Now, the things that, specific things that historically rulers have at various times conferred upon the priestly class, one is exemption from certain rules that everyone else in the society has to live by. So, for example, a priestly class may be exempt from taxation. They may be exempt from certain other laws and restrictions that are applied to almost everyone else. They also can get spoils. So sometimes priestly class will get a share of the tax money or the plunder that is confiscated by the king's authorities. This can extend to all sorts of things in wartime, of course. might include even things like getting a cut of the slaves who are taken during a war or being given some of the women who are taken during a war. And in general, the ruler can use his political and military might to back up and buttress the position of the official priestly class who are giving him legitimacy. So the king, for example, can ban competitors. If another group of priests who are not part of the official institutional organization show up and start saying, hey, we've got the real pipeline to the gods, and the guy who's buddies with the king who says he's got the pipeline to the gods, he's full of shit. Well, the king can, you know, the, the official priest can say, hey, those guys are heretics, don't listen to them, and maybe they'll be persuasive, maybe they won't be. Maybe the, the renegade clergy will be more charismatic and attracting more of a following by playing to the people's uh, resentments and so on. So if the official priests can't be persuasive just on their own merits that their challengers are heretics, they can always get their buddy, the king, to take care of it with the sword. They can get the king to arrest um, the, the renegade priests for treason or, or whatever, or accuse them of collaborating with some foreign enemy. Lots of different options there. And then just wipe them out. So that's this mutually beneficial relationship you have between throne and altar. So, through the vast majority of human history, in the vast majority of parts of the world, in many different cultures, with many different specific religious and political traditions, nonetheless, this tight alliance between throne and altar is almost ubiquitous. I mean, up until relatively recently in human history, this is standard operating procedure. Now, in some parts of the world in the last, say, three or four centuries, religiosity... In, in, the, in the literal sense of believing in supernatural things and gods and whatever, religiosity has been on the decline in many parts of the world. Not everywhere, obviously, but in many parts of the world it's on the decline. So under those conditions, it no longer works very well to have priests out there saying, hey, support this king or this government or whatever, because he's ordained ordained by God. If people don't believe in God, or at least don't believe in that particular God, that's not a very helpful thing in terms of legitimizing the ruler. And so what ends up happening, and this is discussed by Rothbard in Anatomy of the State, and I'll link to that in the show notes. I've linked to it before. I'll link to it again in the show notes for you to read it. You can read it online for free. What happens is the political rulers, and it doesn't really particularly matter if we're talking about a, a monarchy 
or a republic or some other thing, the political rulers still find that they need some sort of legitimation aside from just having force on their side. And there are still groups of people who, in times gone by, would have been part of the priestly class who, you know, are, are in danger of being underemployed. They certainly don't want to do any job that's dangerous or difficult. They want a job where they can live pretty comfortably and, and not, have to, not have to be out there in the fields pulling roots or whatever. And yeah, I know there are like low-level uh, orders of monks and things that, that do hard labor, but I'm, I'm talking about the real hierarchy of a religious organization. I'm talking about, you know, I'm not talking about the impoverished monk who's out there working in a, in a vegetable garden for 18 hours a day in his vow of poverty and whatever. I'm talking about, like, you know, the guy who who sits on the golden throne surrounded by expensive loot and, and jewels and things like this and who is, you know, living pretty freaking comfortably and, and his sort of henchmen and upper echelon of cohorts, right? So if you're those type of guys, man, you don't want to have to get a real job and you don't want to lose all your privileges and, and your you know, all the benefits that come from being close to and favored by those in power. And you've got this skill set. You look at the skill set that historically priestly classes usually have, it's it's intelligence. It's, you know, they're, they're often some of the most literate people in a society, some of the most educated. And in addition, in particular, they usually are people who are very persuasive with the spoken word. But now, uh, if because of things like scientific revolution and so on, people are becoming more and more skeptical about the traditional supernatural ideas, then this class of people who is very verbally adroit and wants to have this privileged position, somebody like that, what they may do is to take that skill set that they have from either having been a religious official, or at least from having had an education and training similar to that. And what they'll do is they'll become what in modern times are known as intellectuals. And in particular, what I'm talking about when I talk about intellectuals here and for the rest of this episode as I'm criticizing these people, I'm not talking about everyone who thinks deeply about things and, you know, writes about philosophy and political political philosophy and economics and, and social type stuff. I'm not talking about every individual who is intelligent and writing books and essays about ideas and, and big concepts. In, in particular, when I say intellectual for the rest of this episode, I'm specifically talking about any type of public intellectual whose position and, and prestige and income is largely or entirely tied into the state, either directly, in other words, they're being paid by the state, or indirectly in that they're... Um, performing certain functions for the state, not necessarily being paid directly by it, but that they are benefiting from the existence of the state and how it operates. So intellectuals in this instance might include most of what we would think of as academia. It would include most of like think tank type institutes, the vast majority of which, with a few exceptions, are very tied into the state apparatus, even if they're not directly getting their money from them. It would also include most of the major media. There's, there's a very tight relationship that's not spoken about as much as it deserves to be between big media and the state. Even though, in the United States at least, the media corporations are not 
literally state institutions, nonetheless, they are very tied into them in a variety of ways. There are, um, in many instances, regulations, particularly when we're talking about things like television and radio. There are regulations that favor large corporations over small, artificially. And then there's the fact that the state, especially the modern large bureaucratic state that is involved in like every aspect of life, practically, is able to privilege certain media figures and media companies over others, if they so desire, by only giving interviews and information to groups they like. So in other words, if media company A publishes a story spilling a lot of dirt on the Pentagon, and media company B does not cover that story, even though they had an opportunity to, they, they turned it down, guess what? In the future, the Pentagon officials and media people are not going to talk to media company A. That'll be their form of retaliation. And they will give all of the good leads and stories, you know, the stuff that they want published, of course, but still, all the information that they give to the media, they will then give to media company B in this instance. So these people, these quote-unquote intellectuals, in this sense of the word, whether they realize they're doing it or not is not terribly important. It's still, it is what it is. It's the phenomenon just translating itself into a situation in which fewer people are, are religious, at least in the sense that they used to be in ancient times. And so what you have is intellectuals taking the place of the priestly class. Same relationship, right? The rulers, the politicians, they give the intellectuals various perks and privileges and goodies might be the form of direct subsidy, might be the form of favorable regulations, uh, might be in the form of regulations that, you know, apply to certain trades. One of them, one of them for example, is uh, the, the regulations that are applied in terms of requirements for degrees and certificates for, for certain jobs that are, that are arbitrary. And um, they, they protect and assure artificially high standard of living for certain types of intellectuals. Now, as in the case of religious institutions gone by, where there were gradations, where you had, you know, poor priests and monks and things that, you know, were not really living, living the high life and didn't really experience that much uh, privilege, and then you had the higher levels, the, the bishops or, or whatever, that are living very comfortably. So with modern intellectuals, I'm not here to argue that every... Everybody in academia, for example, is really um, living a, a comfortable, privileged life. I certainly am not. I, I make marginally more money than a high school teacher does, but not a whole lot more. And my benefits are a little better, but not, it's not enormous. Because I've only got a master's degree, and I teach at a you know, fairly small, humble little school. So I'm, I guess, in a way, kind of like the equivalent of, of a relatively impoverished uh, monk or, or, I don't know, local, local rural parish priest or something like that. And of course, in my case, I'm not out there actively uh, promoting the state. But when you look at how much money, for example, professors at major big-time fancy universities make, uh, it's staggering in some cases. I mean, yeah, they still make a crap load less than the, than the football coach probably does if it's a big football school. But, um, you know, 
relative to how hard they work, that's another difference. I teach a crap load of classes every semester, and um, the fancy people at the big universities, holy crap, you know, they'll take a take a long long sabbatical to go do research in in the French Riviera on something, you know, and uh, teach like one class a year and still get full pay, which is much more than my, my pay anyway. So understand, I'm not saying that every members every one of the members of one of these classes benefits equally or or maybe even on net at all but you think about it the people who are professors at huge major universities if there were not various government arrangements and subsidies and so on for them would they be likely to actually earn an equivalent standard of living on the free competitive marketplace some of them might be able to some of them might have knowledge and skills that the free market would reward you know, somebody who's teaching engineering at a major university could probably still do fine in a competitive marketplace. They would just be doing a different job, you know, actually being an engineer rather than teaching engineering. But, you know, I'm sure they could do okay. Um, some of the literature people in academia would perish. Some of them probably could make a living writing, writing books and things that people actually wanted to read. Same thing with historians and economists. You know, some of them might be able to write things that people would actually want to read voluntarily, but some of them certainly would not. So the intellectual class gets the benefit that the priestly class used to have of getting an artificial boost to many of them in income and standard of living, certain privileges and so on. And in return, they confer legitimacy upon the rulers. Now, in modern times, they don't do it through an appear to an appeal to spirituality in most cases anyway, in the modern, you know, developed world. But instead, they do it through new beliefs such as quasi-religious faith in things like democracy and the will of the people and other ideological things. Now, I'm going to be wrapping up soon because I'm almost at where I need to go, but the last thing I want to mention before I pause to go into work and then I'll reconvene for my drive home to, to finish this, but the last thing I do want to point out is that there have been non-priestly intellectuals buttressing the state for a long time. Even back when the priestly class still was the main group performing this function, there still was, from fairly early on, non, non-priestly non individuals who were also buttressing the ruler's legitimacy. And in general, these were people like scribes, who were the earliest people keeping written records, and related to that, many of the earliest historians, quote-unquote, which were almost always what are known as court historians, which is, you know, a guy, basically a scribe, whose job is to write the story of a particular king or a particular dynasty or what have you. Now, of course, given who's hiring him, given who's paying him to do this, and given the fact that the person hiring him to do this is likely to uh, have him imprisoned or killed if he doesn't do a, a satisfactory job, this court historian is basically going to just be as creative as he has to and come up with stories about some particular king being uh, brilliant, winning all of his battles single-handedly. This is why in the early Bronze Age type artwork, you've got always depictions of the ruler is like twice the size, literally twice as tall as all of his warriors and things like that. You know, he's winning the battle practically by himself with just a little help from his uh, warriors because, after all, he doesn't want to appear too immodest, right? And so there have been these people... I mean, history itself, 
until you start to get something in some of the ancient Greek historians approaching skepticism and a desire to get to the objective truth. For most of human history, though, history's main purpose has been to legitimate the rulers. And I would argue that much of mainstream history today, whether academic or quote-unquote popular history, has largely the same function. Now, they might criticize specific presidents or, or specific congressmen, but they always have, lurking in the background, either explicitly or implicitly, they always have the larger point of the system itself is legitimate. Yes, occasionally some bad apples might work their way into it, but overall the system itself is sound. That's, that's kind of the, the larger narrative, I think, that comes out of much of academic history. And it's just fringe weirdos like myself who, who dig deeper and have a more radical, holistic critique of the whole thing. You know, we don't just point to the American system and go, yeah, occasionally you might get a bad president like Richard Nixon. Right? Everybody, everybody wants to pick on Nixon and throw him under the bus. And I'm not here to tell you Nixon wasn't a, wasn't a really bad guy. But the idea that he's somehow like uniquely bad amongst presidents of the last 50 years is absurd. He just was the guy who got caught in more things and the guy who was less skillful at handling things and covering things up and bullshitting his way uh, with the press. So anyway, modern intellectuals, for the most part, whether they even realize they're doing it or not, largely are performing this function of lending legitimacy to the institutions and, in many cases, even the individuals who rule and who have ruled. And then the, the political class, in return, provides the intellectuals with various types of benefits. So that's where we'll leave it for now. I'm going to go into work, and then I'll come back and, and talk to you some more on my commute home. So, talk to you in a little bit. So, I think where I left off before I headed into work was talking about the way in which in more modern societies, especially in the West, in places where direct theocracy is, for the most part, no longer as PC as it used to be, that secular intellectuals of various types, including academics and media figures, have largely taken the role formerly played by official clergy of legitimizing the state, and how, in a lot of cases these sorts of public intellectuals have very similar skill sets that the priestly classes of old used to have. And in many ways, they have a very similar symbiotic relationship with the political authorities. And this includes both those intellectuals who are directly on the state's payroll and those who are helped out by the state in a variety of other, sometimes not so obvious ways. So, you know, could include media figures, even though nominally you would look at them and say, well, they work for a private corporation, so they're not, they're not on the state's payroll directly, but they still might be on the hook by the state in various other ways. And then, of course, there's the whole Operation Mockingbird thing, which I may do a show about in the future. And if you're not familiar with that term, Operation Mockingbird, it was a CIA operation during the Cold War, and apparently there's still some version or versions of it going on even to this day, just no longer that specific official, you know, name and everything. But Operation Mockingbird was a years-long campaign during the Cold War of having the CIA infiltrate lots of major media 
including American media, which, if I'm not mistaken, I believe is expressly forbidden by law, <laughs> which, you know, no surprise that, I mean, they break their own rules all the time, right? They'll, they'll throw your ass in the slammer for the slightest infraction, but they exempt themselves from their, their own rules all day long. But yeah, Operation Mockingbird is yet another topic that's on my 20-mile-long topic of things to, or list of topics to cover in the Dangerous History Podcast. So, yeah, if, if you've heard me mention in the past, you know, some topic I might cover in the future, and then you haven't heard much about it for a long time, don't worry. It's, I've got this gigantic list, which I guess is a good thing because it means I'm not going to be pod fading anytime soon. And especially the more people I can get as listeners and the more people I can get as supporters, the more I'll be able to just keep the show rocking for, you know, indefinitely, I guess, until they drone me, until guys show up and throw a black bag over my head and drag my ass to Guantanamo. And back to the, the serious discussion of the connection between intellectuals and the state, of course, part of it is that people in general, especially in, in much of the West, and you know, much of the developed world in the past few centuries have become less and less religious, or at the very least, less fervently so. And so the priestly class can no longer have the unquestioned authority that it used to. And then another thing is that for a variety of reasons, again, in in the West, in the developed world, the first world, right, whatever you want to call it, there also was a turning away, even among those who did not turn away from religion, there was a, a distinct turning away from the idea of a tight, direct relationship between church and state. And in part, it's because of the experience that Europe had of religious wars during the Reformation and so on, there was more of a move, intellectually and also in practice, against the idea of having direct ties between church and state. Now, you know, lots of European countries still kept this connection, but it became over time less and less blatant and direct and so on. And also in most places... Uh, religious toleration and religious freedom began to increase. So even in countries where there was a government-connected church in, in many countries in the West, that connection might still remain, but there would be freedom for people to choose and support and attend other denominations and things like that increasingly. So it meant that the church, church-state bond, while, while not entirely going away everywhere, became much less powerful than it used to be. And so you add that to people's increasing skepticism of religion or organized religion, or at least becoming more theologically liberal and less rigidly dogmatic in a lot of cases. And it, this is what makes it much, look much more lucrative and beneficial to become a public intellectual than to become a member of the clergy class. Now, not that they don't still, in, in the U.S., and probably, I'm sure, in other countries get still get perks, you know, tax-exempt status and various other things, right? But the point is, it's not what it used to be. So you've increasingly got this new priestly class who are secular public intellectuals, and whereas in times gone by, the state would often justify itself as being God's agent on earth and carrying out God's will, well, now that they're no longer doing that in as many places... They've come to rely more and more on other mythologies. And so in a way, you could almost see this transition from where the state was God's agent on earth to increasingly like the state is some sort of God, even though it's not explicitly called that, but it is seen as something that is and ought to be all-powerful. It is and ought to be all-knowing, right? We see this with things like 
the NSA and all of the surveillance. All-powerful, there should be nothing exempt from its ability to regulate, control, tax, ban, subsidize, whatever. So the modern, the modern state has, or at least tries to have, some of the most important characteristics of gods of the past, particularly gods found in monotheistic religions. The omnipotence and the omniscience, right? I mean, used to be only God would know if you were doing something bad and doing it, you know, secretly, stealthily, and only God would then be able to punish you, whether throw a lightning bolt at you in this life or set something up for you in the afterlife. Well, now you've got a case wherein the state can monitor almost everything you do and then drone your ass. Now, so far, weaponized drones, to my knowledge at least, have not been used inside the United States, but they have been used abroad in a bunch of countries, none of which the United States uh, had declared war on. And as I'm sure most of you know, there have been several cases where the targets of killer drones were actually U.S. citizens. And, you know, these were not accidents or collateral damage that, you know, some U.S. citizen was standing next to Al-Qaeda's top guy. It was these U.S. citizens were specifically targeted and killed. So what I'm saying is look at the trend, right? We already have virtually total surveillance, at least of electronic things. And that's so much of what life and commerce and, and social life are today. We've already got the weaponized drones. We've already got them being used extremely freely. By the way, as I, as I tweeted the other day, and this tweet got a decent amount of favorites and retweets, if the goal is to minimize innocent, innocent deaths, we would do far more if we banned the president from ordering drone strikes than if we did something like banning magazines for weapons that hold more than 10 rounds. So we've got, we've got this trend where drones are constantly on the uptick, and with fewer and fewer restrictions, I ask you, how long is it until drones are being used even inside the United States? And maybe at that point the American people might actually give a flying fuck and start to, start to ask questions about this whole thing, because so far, as long as they're bro- blowing up brown people on the other side of the planet, o- only a few radical weirdos like me seem to even give a shit or see this as a, as a disturbing trend. But can you imagine once they start blowing up people that are actually in America, some of whom may not be brown, people might get upset. But guess what, folks? By then, it's pretty damn late in the game. As H.L. Mencken put it, and I may not be getting the quote exactly because I'm driving and don't have it in front of me, but uh, H.L. Mencken once wrote something along the lines of, The trouble with defending freedom is that one spends most of one's time defending the rights of scoundrels, because it is against scoundrels that oppression is first aimed, and oppression must be stopped right away if it is to be stopped at all. And I think I'm almost word for word there. So, yeah, I'm sure some of these people that are getting targeted by drones are, in fact, terrorists. But, you know, the point is, you keep establishing this precedent of the state can kill whoever it wants without any even pretense of due process, let's be honest, with, with increasingly fewer and fewer restrictions and uh, little to no regard for collateral damage, innocent lives, and so on. And so people were not willing to defend the lives of brown foreigners with scary Muslim-sounding names, some of whom may have actually been terrorists, but many of whom are not. The American people were not willing to stand up over that stuff, 
And so the oppression was not stopped at the beginning when it was targeting, quote-unquote, scoundrels, meaning, you know, in this instance, some people who maybe are literally scoundrels, but some people who are just outside of the, the sphere of people that most Americans give a crap about. And so there you go. Now, think about it. That means the modern state is getting closer and closer to being all-knowing and all-powerful. So, in a way, in an almost literal way, many of these modern public secular intellectuals who are legitimizers of the state are, in fact, like the priestly class of the god of the state. And like I think I mentioned in the first part of this during my commute to work, there are now dogmas and beliefs and ideologies regarding the state and its legitimacy that are so similar as to be almost identical to religious dogmas and beliefs. So in place of the will of God, we have the will of the people. In the place of the divine right of kings, we have majority rule. All these sorts of things. And we even have rituals. As I think I've mentioned before at various points over the course of this podcast, of, of you know all the different episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast, I'm sure I've at least once or twice mentioned you know, my belief that so much of what we see in politics is ritual. And like in the case of religious rituals, it's rituals designed to make something seem different or special than what it is or what it was previously. And to make things which normally would not seem legitimate seem to be not only totally legitimate, but actively good. So in, in ancient cultures that practice human sacrifice to their deities, by doing the proper ritual and you know, carving out someone's heart, all the, all the people watching, all the spectators, would look at this and go, oh, it's a good thing, you're making the gods happy, it's a, it's a good and noble and right thing to appease the gods and blah, blah, blah. Whereas normally, if you just, even in those ancient societies, if you just saw a random person get grabbed by another random person on the street and, you know, thrown down and get their heart carved out, even in most of these ancient societies, that would be considered a crime. And some of them, if the person who was murdered was a slave, it might be not much of a crime. But su- suppose the victim was not a slave. Suppose the victim was some sort of free person. Even in most ancient societies, to just go up to somebody and throw them down and tear their heart out would be considered a crime and would probably lead to severe punishment. But if it's being carried out by a priest in the context of the proper rituals, with the proper incantations being spoken and he's wearing the proper sacrificial robes when he's doing it, and maybe even using like the special fancy uh, knife with the right runestones on it, suddenly this, uh, what would normally be seen as murder, is considered to be not murder, but in fact a good thing. Well, how is this any different from the, from the ways in which certain rituals and symbols and incantations of the modern state are used to legitimize, and actually do in the minds of most of the people, legitimize actions taken by the state, that if anyone else did them, without the proper spells and so on, would be considered not just not good, but in fact morally abominable. So you have this president, who's just this normal guy, he, he puts his pants on one leg at a time and all that, 
and suddenly he there's this ritual called an election in which people read the the auspices and and uh, decide that he has got in the favor of the will of the people and then there's a further ratification ritual known as the inauguration in which a black-robed priest, excuse me, Supreme Court Justice, has him read a magical spell, excuse me, oath of office. And then, just like the way in which the Catholic ritual of transubstantiation is supposed to turn bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus, even though it still looks and tastes like bread and wine, so these political rituals such as swearing-in ceremonies for congresspeople and the president and so on, or even law enforcement people, really. These ceremonies are the equivalent of a religious ritual providing a transubstantiation sort of a function. And so the president is the same guy he was before he took this magical oath spell. But now everybody believes he is something more than a man. He's something more than he was. He is now Mr. President, and he now needs to be obeyed. And he gets all these powers and privileges, including, these days, the ability to dispatch flying robots to murder people. And in fact, he's just an ordinary guy, but because everybody believes the bullshit ritual, they think of him as special and magical, and they, uh, Emperor's New Clothes type stuff, you know, they, in their head, Rorschach onto him all these great things. Now, there's a safety valve. The safety valve is there's two parties, so if you don't like a president and he's a different party than you, you can do that, and it's okay. But then you have the nonsense that people still, for the most part, will mouth and believe, this nonsense of, well, even if you don't like the guy in it, you still have to respect the office. And so things which would normally be considered assault or murder or kidnapping are okay when done by the agents of the state who have performed proper oath ceremonies and who are wearing the proper magical insignias and have the proper titles and so on, suddenly what would normally be considered pretty serious crimes become not just not crimes, but in fact the opposite of crime. So if I didn't like something about how my neighbor was living his life, or I didn't like the fact that he was consuming a particular substance that I did not approve of, and I went over there as just a regular person and hit him with a club and dragged him off and threw him in a dungeon... Well, that would be assault and battery and kidnapping. But if I am the representative of this magical god on earth, this leviathan known as the state, then suddenly me doing the exact same actions is sanctified. And it reminds me of the the idea, I can't remember if it was from Martin Luther, I think it was from John Calvin actually, but I could be wrong, the idea of the justified sinner. The idea of sort of the leader who does what normally are considered sinful things, but he does it for a good reason, and so it's okay, he's doing what he had to do, ends justify the means. Now I want to wrap up with a a suggested way for you to potentially think about the modern split, at least in American politics, I can't speak to other countries' politics in in nearly as much uh, detail and from as much knowledge, but the current split in the United States in mainstream politics between standard liberals and standard conservatives, thinking about it in light of all this thrown-and-altar stuff, it 
appears to me that one way one could see the liberal versus conservative split is it is a dispute over whether the state should be more allied to secular intellectuals as it has been in America for at least about the last hundred years, you know, really since the progressive era, dispute whether the state should be allied more to secular intellectuals or whether the state in America should revert more, more to being tied into religious authorities instead. And so this explains this split between progressive secular socialists and conservative theocons. You have an argument over whether the state should be tied into these secular public intellectuals or whether the state should go back to being tied more into alliance with the clergy, with religious officials. And considering how much of current American mainstream party politics, I think anyway, is summed up by what I just said, then what intelligent thinking person wouldn't be totally turned off? by what's going on. You basically have the alternatives of should the political rulers be in bed with clergy or with quote-unquote intellectuals? Pick one. Pick what particular flavor of oppression you would prefer to live under. And there's no option, at least, you know, within the, within the paradigm, right? There's no option of none of the above or I'd like to just be free, thank you very much. That's not... That's not an option within the standard system. And I want to be clear, um, even though I'm, I'm a non-believer, I, I have a little bit of affection for Christian anarchists. You know, I've read some of their writings, Jacques Ellul and some other people, and I don't really have a huge problem with Christian anarchists because Christian anarchists, I know there are a few uh, Buddhist anarchists and, and Muslim anarchists, but, you know, those, I have less of a problem with religious people who are anarchists than I do with atheists who are statists. Because a religious anarchist, I might not agree with with their beliefs, but by definition, they're not seeking to impose their beliefs or their preferences onto me. And so I don't really have a problem with that. As long as as everybody can, can be polite and not, you know, be pushing things where it's been made clear they don't want things pushed, right... I don't really have a problem. What what my neighbor believes in, theologically, I do not give a crap about as long as he's not either harassing me after I've said no thanks, or as long as he's not trying to influence the state to enforce his beliefs one way or another upon me and everyone else, whether we want him or not. Now, unfortunately, in modern America right now, the vast majority of believers do fit one or both of those those caveats I just mentioned. They either do want to be pushy on you, even when you've made it clear, no thank you, or they really want the state to enforce their preferences on everybody, or both. And then theists who are anarchists, and, and are, who are you know really anarchists, and respect things like the non, non-aggression principle and so on, I've got no real problem with them. I'm, I'm not really interested in like trying to persuade them out of their belief system. I'm happy to live and let live with that. I'm actually much more concerned about how many 
atheists, at least currently, are hardcore statists. Because the way the mainstream paradigm is set up, and the way people feel they have to pick one side or the other in this dichotomy, because of, of what I mentioned a few minutes ago, of liberals are those who think the state should be tied up with secular intellectuals, and conservatives are those who think the state should be tied up with clergy. In general, if you are a non-believer and you have not been exposed to or you have not been convinced of the ideas of, of anarchism and you, you only can mentally exist within the statist paradigm, if that's, that's your intellectual box, so to speak, well, of course, you're going to gravitate more towards the quote-unquote liberal side. And same deal, if you are a a serious believer, especially if you're of the more kind of fundamentalist flavors of whatever beliefs you have, right, whatever religious beliefs, and you are just enclosed in the statist paradigm intellectually, and you feel you just have to choose one flavor, then, of course, you're going to gravitate towards the more quote-unquote conservative side. And so, anyway, I just wanted to talk about this because I think it's kind of a deep topic, and I think it's something that is almost ubiquitous throughout human history wherever there is a state or anything verging on a state you know could just be a a highly centralized tribal system but one that is you know coercive and and large and overbearing that wherever you have some serious coercive authority in existence you inevitably will find it either in bed with religious leaders or in bed with public intellectuals, and by in bed with, again, I mean having this cozy symbiotic relationship of ruler provides goodies and privileges, and the clergy or intellectuals provide legitimacy. They create and disperse and reinforce belief systems amongst the general populace that a particular ruler or a particular system is good, inevitable, and should be actively obeyed. And in fact, you should even love Big Brother. So thank you for joining me on these commutes. I hope you found my discussion here worthwhile, and I hope you found it thought-provoking on, on some level. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that, 
For any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.